Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you, and a special welcome to those that are joining us online this morning, as well as those that are joining us on KTCU via the radio, wherever you are. We hope and pray that this time of worship is meaningful to you, and we are glad that we can be together. We're thankful for the technology that allows us to be together even when we're not, and so it's good for us to be together. Back in 2003, a year before his tragic and untimely death in a car accident, Mike Iaconelli wrote a book entitled Messy Spirituality, God's Annoying Love for Imperfect People. It's a great book, fantastic title. Part of what made it so compelling is that he was honest and he was frank about his own journey with Jesus, about, about how after 40 years of being a Christian, that his life was still messy. And not only his life, but he told story after story about people, some of them in the Bible, some of them people that he had personally known, people in his own congregation, who had found grace through Jesus despite the messiness of their life. I'm starting a new series, as Renee pointed out, uh, that is intended to be sort of a, a simple guide to the Christian life for ordinary people for whom life is sometimes messy. For those of us who want to follow Jesus, who, who want to experience more of God in our lives, to grow, to become even more like the people that God created us to be. So we're going to look over the next five weeks at five simple practices that Jesus' followers have have always pursued as they have sought to walk with him, things that he modeled in his own life. And please know that this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of spiritual disciplines. There are countless ways that we can grow in our walk with God. But these, I would argue, are foundational. They are the essential steps in the discipleship path, at least for most of us. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is walking along the shoreline of the Sea of the Galilee, and he encounters, he encounters a couple of fishermen, one by the name of Simon Peter and another by the name of Andrew, and he gives them a simple invitation. He simply says, come, follow me. And a few steps later, he, he calls James and John to do the same thing. And a little bit later, he encounters a tax collector by the name of Matthew and said to him, follow me. And I want you to notice that he didn't invite them to recite the Apostles' Creed. He didn't invite them to take a membership class. He simply said, come, follow me. And they accepted that invitation and began to follow him. And these followers became known as disciples, ones who would follow, ones that would learn from, who would emulate their master. It's this idea of walking with Jesus, following in his footsteps, that we will lean into in this series. Because we, as people of faith, as people who claim the name as Christians, we are followers of Jesus. And we want to learn from him. We want to emulate him. We want to go where he wants us to go, to do what he wants us to do. To walk on this journey of life with him. So for the next five weeks, we'll look at five simple spiritual practices, steps on the discipleship path that I hope will deepen our faith, will help us to become more aware of God's presence in our lives and to help us live 
Christian lives in this messy world. Our text today is from the book of Psalms, oftentimes referred to as the the prayer book of the Bible. It's a collection of poems and prayers of, of hymns, many of them including this one that is alleged to be written by King David himself, were written to be used in corporate worship. And I want you to listen to the pronouns that are used. Us, we, ours. So I invite you to listen now to Psalm 95. The scripture this morning is from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. Here begins the reading. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea of his, for he made it, and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would listen to his voice. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I want to ask you a question this morning, and I don't want you to take it the wrong way. I want you to take it the way that it is intended. But why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Why did you set your alarm and get up and and put on your Sunday best to drive to this place? Or why did you take the time to find us on the radio or log in on your computer? Why, Why are you here today? There's so many other places that you could be, so many things that you could be doing. The weather outside is gorgeous. It's a beautiful day for a run or a chance to play tennis. There are a lot of things that you could be doing today. So why are you here? You know, let's be honest. What we do here on Sunday morning is somewhat countercultural. And by that, I mean that most of the people in our culture are sleeping in this morning, or they are reading the New York Times in bed, they are shopping, maybe they're, they're going to soccer games, they're doing yard work, they're getting ready for a day of football. Many places in our country, 30 to 40 percent, 30 to 40 percent of the people are attending church. And not just any given Sunday, I mean any Sunday. You being here is somewhat unusual. It's unique. It's abnormal. Don't get me wrong. It's great. But it's not typical. So why are you here? You know, the most basic practice in the Christian spiritual life is for us to gather together for worship. 
It's been practiced throughout scriptures. It's been lived out by Jesus. Has been has been foundational in the spiritual lives of of God's people across the millennia. In her 1936 book Worship, Catholic writer Evelyn Underhill said this, gave this definition of what worship is. Worship, she said, in all of its grades and kinds is the response of the creature to the eternal. When I was in seminary, the the definition of worship that was given to me was it's the primary and appropriate response of the creature to the creator. Underhill would go on to say, nor need we limit this definition to the human sphere. We may think of the whole of the universe, both seen and unseen, conscious and unconscious, as an act of worship. And I love this. I love this because because it points us to the notion that everything that God created is a reflection of the glory, of the goodness, of the grace of God. When we look at the plants, they display God's glory. When we hear the birds sing or the lions roar, they are, whether they are conscious or unconscious, they are giving glory to God with their voices. On a clear night, when you can see the stars, you look up at the stars, and, and they too are declaring the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. But here's the thing. Birds can't help but sing. And stars, they know no other life than to shine. But as humans, each of us unique in our own way, we have a choice. We decide whether we will give thanks to God, that we will praise God, that we will seek to glorify God with our lives or not. But there is something within us, I would argue, there is something within us that longs to worship, just as the birds need to sing. You see, worship is the only appropriate response of God's people, of God's creatures. The the love and the grace and the mercy, the generosity, the greatness of God, that is the only response. The modern English word worship comes from an old English word, worthship, which suggests that something is recognized as worthy of honor. And that worship is how we respond to the Creator who is uniquely worthy of our admiration, of our reverence, of our awe, of our thanksgiving, of our praise. And so when we worship, when we honor God as God, we acknowledge that God is God and we are not. But that we are simply children of the Creator. Worship says Underhill, is the appropriate response of the creature to the creator who made them all. We were made in part to worship God. It's at the very heart of what we do as people of faith. It defines us in some ways. Back in the 1600s, theologians in England and Scotland, they got together and created a document that was used to teach uh, to, to, to summarize all of the Christian faith, what Christians believe to be true about God, about what it means to be a human, to be a child of God. It's called the Westminster Catechism. And it's a series of questions and answers. And one of the best known questions was posed as this What is the chief end 
of humankind. And the response is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, it says. You see, we were created. We were created to display God's glory. Our lives are only properly oriented when we are seeking to give God glory. Recognizing God as the the source of our lives. Giving thanks and praise. And not just with our words, but with our hearts, with every part of our being. Our lives are meant to be a living hallelujah. Did you notice? I hope you did. I hope you noticed that in the text that we just heard, that there was this call not just for us as individuals to worship, but for us to worship God together. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for God is our God, and we are the people. We are to come together. We, we the people, together for worship as a community of faith. And when we read the New Testament, when we look at the book of Acts and, and some of the epistles, we, we can see, we can, we can sort of piece together what they did as Christians, as the early Christian community when they would gather together for worship. That they would pray together, that they would pray with and for one another, giving thanks to God. They would, they would sing psalms and spiritual songs together, lift their voices together. They broke bread together in the same way that we will do in a moment They sought to encourage one another. They would cheer each other on to live a life of love and good deeds. They would collect an offering that would express their love and their gratitude to God, but also also sought to help other people. You see, worship was not something that they just attended. It was something that they did. They didn't come to be entertained, but to respond to God's love and grace with gratitude and with prayers, offering themselves to God, seeking in that moment to be a blessing to other people. Now, the order of worship that you have in your bulletin, the words that are said, the songs that are sung, those, that, is, that is part of what's known as the liturgy. Liturgy is, uh, comes from a Greek word, liturgia, which means simply the work of the people. The work of the people. Notice it doesn't say the work of the pastors. It says the work of the people. Now, I suspect that I am probably not the only one who does this from time to time, but, but we come to worship sometimes and treat it sort of like a movie or a play. I think we do this unconsciously, but but oftentimes we rate everything. We rate the sermon. We rate the prayers. We rate the music. We talk to our friends who weren't able to be here today, and they say, how was church? Well, (laughs) the choir was good. (laughs) Sermon was a little long. Room was a little cold. Communion bread tasted like cardboard. (laughs) You see, we, consciously or unconsciously, we give all of our attention to focusing on the details of what's going on around us. 
and we fail to pay attention to what's going on within us or what God is trying to say to us. And so I would encourage you, I would encourage you, if you you want to rate something about the worship service, rate yourself. And I don't mean to sound defensive or nitpicky, I promise. I know that sometimes my sermons get a little long. But that's only because sermonettes make for Christianettes. I heard that said one time. That's one of my favorite lines. But if you want to rate something, rate yourself. Rather than asking yourself, how was the sermon or the music, simply ask yourself, how did I do? Was I fully present? Was I in in touch to what was going on in my heart and my mind and my soul? Or was I more concerned about the things that I needed to pick up from the grocery store on the way home? Was I more concerned about what so-and-so was wearing? Or was I able to be naked, emotionally naked, vulnerable before God? How did I do? Was I open to new ideas, to new ways of worshiping, or, or was my mindset narrow and closed, expecting God to show up in only the way I expect God to show up? Was I more concerned with waiting for the scripture reader to stumble than I was really listening to what the scriptures had to say to me? How did I do? Soren Kierkegaard, great theologian, once talked about the theater of worship. And the notion behind this was that oftentimes when we come to worship that we have this image in our mind as if we're going to the theater, that we as the congregation are the audience. And the pastors and the preachers, they are the directors. And that God, God is the actor. And that we are there to watch. But Kierkegaard says, no, 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 no. You've got that completely wrong. That God is the audience. The pastor, the preachers, they are the ones that are directing. You are the actors. The work of the people is to worship God. Frederick Buechner once said that this, the church, is a place, it's a room for remembering, he said. And so we come to this place each week to remember who and whose we are. We retell the stories that shape our faith, stories that that turn us from a collection of individuals into a community of faith with a common source, with a common vision of what it means to be people of faith. And we remember these things. And when we remember, we remember We remember, we rejoin, we reconnect with one another. We recall all the way that God provides for us, for our hopes through the hands and the hearts of those people sitting around us. You see, worship connects us not only with God, but also with each other. When Anne Lamott's son, Sam, was a teenager, he hated to go to church. Sam Lamont was the first teenager that never wanted to go to church, ever, in the history of the world. I said that at the 9 o'clock service in the the handbell choir made up of teenagers. They were shocked to hear that there was another person that didn't like to go to church. But yet, Anne says, I make him go to church. 
in part because he lives in my house and he eats my food and he drives my car. So I still have a little bit of control over him. But also because I want him to go, she said. These are bewildering, drastic times that we live in and a little spiritual guidance never killed anyone. I think there are worse things than for kids than to have to spend time with people who love God. She said, teenagers who do not go to church are also adored by God, but they don't get to meet some of the people that love God back. And learning to love back is the hardest part of being alive. She goes on to say, Sam doesn't want to go to church because it is, quote, boring to the point of being embarrassing. But in her words, she says, our worship is so naked It's built on the rubble of need and ruin, and our joy is so deeply uncool. But by the same token, she says, he also doesn't want to floss or pull weeds or do homework or the dishes. In fact, he doesn't want to have to do any hard work, ever. But I can't give him that, she said, without injuring him. It's good to do uncomfortable things. It's weight training for life. Now, I know that you have never said this. But as a preacher, I get this from time to time. Someone will come to me and say, Well, Russ, I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't need to go to church. I can worship God in nature or the golf course. Now, I'm a golfer. I call God's name on the golf course a lot, but not in a way of adoration and praise. Are you with me? I can worship God reading the New York Times. I can still be a Christian and not go to church. Now, when someone says that to me, I usually, usually, not always, resist saying something mean and sarcastic. Most of the time. Instead, what I say is, yeah, yes, you can be a Christian and not go to church, but you can't be the best Christian that you can be, the best of your God self, unless you commit yourself to a Christian community. To truly understand what it means to live a life of discipleship, to understand what it means to be a part of something that is bigger than yourself, to worship God and community, and sometimes that means even giving up your own needs in response to the needs of the community of faith in which you surround yourself. Christopher Stendhal was a great, famous scholar, but to tell you the truth, I don't know a single word that he ever said. But I do know what his wife once said when she said this, I can replace every hour of my week. I can go for a walk at another time. I can go to the grocery store some other time. The only time in my week that I cannot be replaced is the time I spend at church because I cannot duplicate, I cannot replicate the time I spend with my community of faith. Several years ago, I was talking with a member of the church that I was serving at the time a young woman, three kids. She was married. 
Her life was pretty stressful at the time. She was working full-time. Her marriage was a little shaky. In addition to raising three kids, working full-time, trying to fix her marriage, she was also going back to school. Needless to say, she was a little stretched. But yet, despite that, every Sunday morning, she sat on the third row. One Sunday, I was talking to her after church, and I said, you seem a little worn out. She says, yes, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm stretched thin. And I said, you know, you, know you, you don't have to come to church every Sunday. I could see in her face, she was worn out. I was trying to give her an out, and she said, no, no rest. You don't understand. I have to come to church. And I said, you know, you don't. People miss all the time. They sleep in. They go to the lake. And then she looked at me and she said, no, no, I have to go to church. Because it is the only time all week that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am loved. I have to go to church. I realize that there are a lot of things that you could be doing this morning. I really do. But I also know that you know that to be your best, to be our best as a community of faith, we need to be intentional about giving thanks, about giving praise, about giving ourselves to one another and to giving ourselves to God. It is an essential part of being a disciple a follower of Jesus, a person of faith. To be a follower of Jesus is to worship God. Our lives are meant to be. We are created to be a living hallelujah.